Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn, and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. So happy you're here, as usual, uh, to listen to this amazing episode we have in store for you. Um, we're taking a little bit of a pause, actually, from our series on networks here, because I think the four of us have been engaged in a number of conversations over the last few weeks about what school and starting up in the fall could possibly look like. And we know it's on everybody's minds right now. And we wanted to kind of pause and talk about some of the things we've been considering, kind of share with you all what's been happening in our conversations. But before we get too deep into the weeds, let's just check in with uh, co the co-hosting team here. Janine, how are you feeling this fine evening? Doing all right. Uh, uh, vacation's officially over, so it's, you know, back to, back to the grindstone here. Um, <laughs> I did have to have a wisdom. I had a wisdom tooth removed yesterday, so if I sound a little funny, that's that's why. <laughs> Gosh, Other than it, that, this is going to be your epic episode, right? <laughs> yeah, the best right, one yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try. Matt, what about you? What what's happening with you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Just uh, just had an epic uh, clue game that got a little heated. Miss Scarlet <laughs> uh, was in the library with a knife. Ooh. So, yeah. So so that got a little rowdy. This wasn't like real life clue. It was like the board no, game. Yeah, right? just the board game. So. Okay, okay, just checking. I've been listening to a lot of Dungeons and Dragons okay. uh, no. um, podcasts recently, and so you know I gotta make sure I get my stories straight here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Julie, what's happening with you? I'm doing just fine. I'm better than Janine, and not as happy as Matt, I guess. <laughs> so I'm doing just fine. Awesome, awesome. So let's get right into it, guys. Uh, we've all been chatting with folks about um, reopening schools. And I think the first thing we kind of want to talk about tonight is um, that there are some things that we have been encountering in our conversations that we feel like schools really got to address when they start to reopen in the fall. And as Tom Vanderark said, uh, you know, a couple episodes back, we've got essentially about 60 days here in order for us to kind of get a handle on what exactly schools are going to do and how we can do it best. And it really behooves anybody listening to this conversation um, this evening to really try to get involved in that conversation as much as you, you feel comfortable and you possibly can. But let's get into um, what we think uh, from our sort of little hive mind here about what schools got to get right. And I'll kick it right off. We, I think all the four of us agree, and everybody in the world should agree to this as well, is that schools got to get equity right. And this is really, as we've talked in countless episodes, that schools, the curtain for schools has been pulled back on the inequitable practices that have been happening in school buildings for ages now. And um, this pandemic has really focused, I think, many teachers and many administrators in um, focused on these inequitable practices even more. And I think that for equity to be a focus of schools, it really needs to start um, at all levels, from teachers' perspective, from parents' perspective, from students' perspective, from administration, and then also from a funding perspective. I would agree with that. And I'd probably just jump on there and also add in with the equity issue is also cultural responsiveness. I think that as we are heading back to school, um, we need to be mindful of the different backgrounds, the different perspectives that our students and their families are coming to school with. Um, I think we have to be careful with the curriculum that we are creating and, you know, the resources that we're using and and what we're putting out there. Yeah, Janine, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's quite a number of students I know that have experienced even more trauma than usual during this, especially the last few weeks as, as there have been protests around the country. There have been um, young people that have been killed or have been um, sick because of COVID. And uh, that is a really big deal. And we absolutely need to make sure that we are being responsive. I would add to any of our students, but particularly our students that um, are, particularly our black and brown students, you know, those students that are, that are watching the news and seeing faces that look like maybe their own. 
that this experience that they're having right now in their in their world might be particularly traumatic, um, as if it wasn't traumatic before, right? <laughs> but um, but right now, uh, a, a greater focus is being placed on that. And so we need to be aware of that as educators and really try to support those students um, really like we should have been all along, but it just brings it more into focus um, right now. So what, what else is happening? What else do we really need to get right as we reopen? Mike, along with that, I'm just thinking like with equity and with cultural responsiveness, I think, um, you know, listening to the community, the stakeholders. So, so not just, you know, sending a plan from up high, but, but sitting down, having a conversation with the community, with the stakeholders, the people in the schools that, that we're serving and listening you know, listening to what would meet their needs, listening to what they want, listening to what they envision school to look like um, when September, because our communities, yes, as a, as a nation, we're all facing this pandemic, but our communities are very unique and we have um, unique needs. And we're not gonna hear those unless we, one, have an ear to our stakeholders and, and second, you know, make them a priority and listening and having those those really meaningful conversations. I think along with what Matt is saying, um, I think we have to be very mindful of uh, people have really struggled financially over the past three, four months. Um, it, it yawns on into uh, the summer here and, and what will happen in, in the fall as well. So just having you know, an eye, and as as Matt is saying, listening to the community, and and trying our best to, as a whole school organization, to be as responsive as we can to those families as well. Yeah, it's so interesting that you guys are saying that because I can give a really clear example of how I've seen a school already not do that very well. Um, a friend of mine has twins, and um, her husband works from home mostly. Is sometimes will will not work from home, but um, they're able to have some sort of consistent childcare. But the school district that they're in messaged them, uh, and in the message it said something along the lines of, and I'm, I'm like roughly paraphrasing here, and it made me kind of heated, so I might be paraphrasing very poorly. But, <laughs> but regardless, it said something along the lines of, be prepared to line up childcare in case a student in your class has to be sent home a student, your student has to be sent home because they've come into contact with COVID. The student might come into contact with COVID in another classroom and have to be sent home, or maybe the entire school has to close and everybody has to be sent home, but you're still at work. So try to work out all of those situations and line up childcare accordingly is sort of what this message said from the school to the parent. And I was like, uh, that's a, it's overwhelming. Like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I agree with you listening and responding to the needs of the local community through that, uh, that, you know, process is, is super important. I, I'm impressed with some of the schools that we've been, we've been sitting in on a lot of different webinars and, <laughs> having conversations to, to hear what other, other schools are doing and how they're getting prepared. And I've, I've been impressed with how much they really have in, included the stakeholders in the conversations, the different surveys that they're sending out to parents and the real collaborative effort for trying to figure out how they're going to move forward in the fall. So kudos to all those schools out there that are doing that. <laughs> right on, right on. So what else is at the heart of what schools got to really consider? this time around? Well, one thing that occurs to me, uh, we have a little bit of experience with, you know, school done differently from our spring experiences. And something that occurred to us right away is that uh, just like, you know, with anything that students were not used to the format. And one thing that became obvious is that student engagement uh, for some students, some students, it remained uh, the same or it even got better. Uh, some students really enjoyed the online format. Um, but the engagement was low for some students. And that was for a variety of reasons, but it very quickly occurred to us that that is a skill that really needs to be taught, just like 
any other skill we try to teach uh, students. Uh, so really thinking about not spending the first week or two, you know, with academic academics, because I know we all feel that sort of panic rising too, right? That our students are somehow behind or yeah, that's the deficit model. Instead, building up those strengths so that whatever the fall throws at us, if we're in, uh, we're out, we're hybrid. Um, some of people have to be home because there's exposure. Whatever happens that our students can maintain that sort of independence and engagement um, that's going to be, you know, first order of business and, and letting the academics really take a sidebar um, for the first few weeks, at least. You're like speaking anti-school language right now, right? <laughs> Which is, I think that so many schools are thinking, just to your point, Julie, oh my gosh, we just spent the last like six months doing no learning and we need to make as many opportunities for catching up as we possibly can make in our curriculum. and it, that almost sounds like it could could go, you know, really wrong really quickly. Yeah. But Janine, to your point, just before we started recording um, here, you were talking about also making sure that students are, are making some sort of academic progress, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think academic growth still needs to be considered essential that we can't just, this can't be a stalemate. <laughs> you know, we, how can we take these kids mm. forward? And I think that, you know, reevaluating, rethinking education here. Can we make it more personalized? Can we individualize for students? Can we incorporate voice and choice um, to increase that engagement and that so that we are helping our students to grow? I think that is still that still has to. Be, I mean, we're educators. That's what we 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 do. Need, that still has to be essential, right? <laughs> like, exactly to your point. I think that one aspect that schools, at least I found to be um, really useful that schools learned over the last few months here was that school doesn't have to be so rigid, right? And that the a more fluid approach to um, what learning could be and what school could look like. And that, that fluid approach has to come from, I think, parents and students and teachers and administrators um, and, and, you know, political pundits as well, that the, the fluid nature of school is very likely going to be what we are going to have to rely on this fall. Because, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, the logistics of what's going to happen this fall is going to be so potentially messy that everybody's going to have to say, whoa, okay, hold on just a minute here. You know, what are we doing? What's happening this week? You know, and um, we, need, we need to be ready for, for that to happen too. Yeah, I was just going to say with the, with going back to the academic growth there. I read an interesting article earlier today. I wish I could remember where I had gotten it from, but um they were talking about this idea of schools either focusing on trying to you know, fill in the gaps that students are now coming back or going back and you know, making sure that they learned what they should have learned, you know, 6 months ago sort of thing versus let's move, let's get moving. Let's move ahead. Like let's, let's forge ahead and like do more of like a spiral. Um, you know, we can still move forward, but, you know, kind of cover the gaps as, as they come up sort of thing. Um, it was kind of, I thought it was interesting to think about there that they, there was a couple studies that were done saying that, um, the schools that were more successful were the ones that were, were forging ahead instead of trying to go back to the starting point where they left off in the, the spring. Right, right. It is a, it is an interesting point to think about. Like, let's say I get a, a student in my school that is in like ninth grade and has um, very poor reading skills. How do we make up those reading skill deficits right now in our schools? That is an interesting thing to to think about with regard to all the skills that students are sort of needing to make up. Um, if we want to keep them on this whatever sort of like imaginary path that we've carved for them that we think is important, I think that's a whole other question altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think another thing we need to consider is social emotional learning. Um, I think with everything we've talked about um, when we in our discussion when we first led with um, the equity piece, um, you know, teaching resiliency, making sure that our mental health for teachers and students is 
is sound, you know, really, um, I know already we've relied on our counselor to kind of start dreaming about what does that look like in the fall? And even over the summer, how can we continue to support students, teachers, and families, which will, it'll no doubt be a very stressful time. Uh, so making sure that we have that component in place, I think is going to be important as well. Yeah, I, I agree totally. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I was just thinking um, sort of off on a tangent a bit, but thinking about access uh, for students at home. So, you know, you have the internet access, right? Um, and then you have the access to technology that's working and helping you out. And and internet access, yes, is a, is a huge national discussion, right? How do we build this infrastructure that should support us all to be able to get on the internet in effective ways with, at ease? But we're not there yet. So we have to have a plan. Um, what's our plan for students to be able to access the internet at home? And to have a plan that says uh, they'll figure it out, that's not a plan. So what are we providing for them? There's hotspots out there, right? There's organizations like in our region of the the neck of the woods, our neck of the woods, uh, you know, making uh, connections with Comcast or some of these other internet um, providers, uh, Verizon, and and talking to them. How can we solve the issue? Yes, I've heard, I've read the articles. You know, people park buses with internet, and yes, that's great. But we need more than buses parked with internet hotspots in local um, parking garages. You know, how are we going to get internet uh, available to students in their homes? And then how are we going to get them the technology in their homes? And this is a hard thing and and as we're talking you know i also have empathy for a lot of the decision makers um but needless to say these are decisions that have to get done because you can't give students work ask them to do it have a lesson when they can't get on the internet and they can't get on the internet with a with a device that functions well like i was just at the beach you know uh, a week ago and their internet is not my verizon fios it's super slow and uh and I, and my work was super slow so imagine if you're like on your phone using a little bit of your data, like trying to do some work. It's it's just roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. We have to get rid of these roadblocks and set it up for students to have effective access. And and I, and that's going to help them. Dang, Matt. Drop that mic. All right. All right. Man, I, I couldn't agree more. And it, it's it's, I think, super interesting to hear about what some tech companies are doing to support um, families. And so, you know, here in Philadelphia, Comcast um, has an open network sort of uh, policy that they're trying to promote, which is super affordable internet for um, for individuals. So they've got a, like a $5 a month plan and a $10 a month plan. But, you know, the truth is until we have universal access to internet, that five to $10 a month is too much. You know, five and ten dollars a month could mean food for a family. Could mean, you know, you you name it. And um, it really, it really is unfortunate. I think uh, the it just speaks to the the point that we were talking about earlier, which is uh, where is all the money going? Right? Like, how are we not funding access to education if this is how we know things are going to be for a while? Um, and so that just brings us into like a, a larger conversation about like actual logistics, right? And I want I would love to hear from everybody about their conversations with their um, schools if you if you've had them. Um, I've essentially encountered three different models, which is the A model. We're all back in person. Everybody's doing school, quote unquote, like normal, right? <laughs> the B model, which is like hybrid. You're in school sometimes, you're out of school sometimes. And the C model, which is all online all the time. Uh, who wants to tackle which one of those models? Well, I'll start, but I, I think really realistically, schools are planning for all three of those. And even within those, right, right, right. it's, like it's ABC subsection point yeah. two, whatever. It, there's a lot of different... <laughs> So I think we will be back. I think we're going to try for it. I'm it who knows what the world's going to look like in in a couple of months here, but um I know in our county, you know, the goal is to be back. Um 
The problem, of course, is that not all students um, will feel comfortable coming back. Not all students, um, you know, have zero health concerns in their whole families. Like that's that's another concern um, that people have pre-existing health conditions, right? Um, not all families will feel comfortable uh, sending them back, even if we have really tight protocols. So we have to be mindful of that. Um, I think in our school, we're definitely looking at if we go back and then what if there's another wave? What if we're not in the green zone? Um, so what does that look like? We're definitely looking if we are back, how do we maintain those CDC guidelines of six feet apart, you know, staggered times. Uh, we have very little control over the transportation, which is one, you know, giant sticking point. There are just so many wrinkles and so many logistical things to, to plan on. And then having that very real possibility in the back of our minds that, you know, March can happen at any time, that we might have to go to online learning again, which, you know, we're not going to let that sneak up on us. This time we'll be ready. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking in my school and I sit on the board of a preschool. We've been talking pretty much in both environments that um, there's going to be at least six weeks of time where we will not be in school. And it is very likely that that amount of time is going to happen, at least in my, my uh, you know, epidemiological professional uh, opinion here um, on rethinking EDU, get all your suggestions right from us, is um, that that time is probably going to be once we leave school for Thanksgiving break, we will not go back to school until the middle of January. That's sort of my, my thought. Um, I'm making a prediction. Although I, I would like to, I would like to add that the last time I made a prediction on this podcast was on the our first knowledge drop episode where I was talking about college admissions, and I was I made some predictions about who was going to go test optional and who wasn't. And the next morning, those two schools went test optional, even though I said that they weren't going to. So uh, yeah, take my predictions for what they're worth. <laughs> um, but I do think that that's something that we absolutely need to plan on is that I, I I think that whenever it is between six and eight weeks, sometime this fall, everybody's going to be home again, you know? Hmm. Um, and Matt, I, I would love to hear what that, what that kind of looks like from your perspective and um, any thoughts you have on any, any of this. So there's a lot of logistics that, that we can go down. Um, and there's a lot of questions uh, to ask and there's a lot of answers to seek, but, but one of the questions that I'm sort of continually asking myself is how are we utilizing this time, right. To innovate with technology. So what I mean by that is how are we not just using a learning management system, but how are we capitalizing on this technology to transform our learning in innovative ways, what can we do? Because it's not enough just to have a student fill out answers on a Google slide. That's great, right? We're making do, we're trying to get them to get the information, but that's not enough. If they do that in the classroom, that's not enough. You know, it's just filling out a worksheet. So what, what are these ways, you know? And, and I think that's a really good conversation to have. And that's, that's something that the past week or so, um, you know, I've been trying to think about because should we get this software? Should we get this? Should we get that? Should we get this? Should we do this? Should we do that? Well, in what ways is this going to transform um, the education for the child is, is a question that I think should be asked when we're thinking about technology. Super interesting. Janine, what do you want to add to this conversation? Uh, I guess two things. First, uh, another article I was reading, <laughs> doing a lot of reading lately. Um, Beach reading. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, see that. Uh, I got one, some good recommendations <laughs> for you, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, one, one suggestion I came across was that teachers should plan 100% for online learning to start off with. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. just plan the entire year out as if you were doing it online. And then that that's like your baseline, you know? Um, and then plan for in-person instruction um, because there's a po good possibility that you're going to have to go back and forth between both of those. And most likely you already have a good chunk of in-person instruction already somewhat, you know, you can, you can tweak what you've used in the past there. But at least if you already, you build the, the online instruction, you can easily go back and forth to 
manifest like a, a hybrid approach if that ends up coming about. So that was just a, a suggestion I came across. But um, the other thing I was thinking about is with with going back to school, Julie had mentioned it with, you know, there's going to be times when, um, you know, if we're all back and we're in person, there's there's bound to be times when a student isn't going to be able to be in class or they have to quarantine for another two weeks or, you know, w whatever the case may be. So even being back in school uh, for in-person instruction, we still have to plan for the online component. And how's that going to look? Is that going to be where all classes have a live camera in them? And so that if students are at home, they can just, you know, zoom in and they're there live again. Are classes going to be recorded? Or I know one school was thinking of um, splitting their their teachers so that there are some that are designated as in-person and there are others that are designated as taking care of the online. Now they're, they, they're saving a day to be able to uh, communicate, collaborate. Like they're, they're still keeping Wednesdays as like a school free, as a no school day, but uh, as a planning day um, so that the in-class component and the online component still match with each other per se. Um, and I guess they were also thinking of doing that because they have staff that, there are some people that didn't don't feel like they are able to do in-person instruction. So I think that was their other way of kind of managing both staff and students that might end up having issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, Janine, you bring up a good point. I, it, we have to think about um, you know faculty who may be compromised uh, with their health. Um, we also have to think that you know someone might be, at any time, we have to think, what is the contingency? Um, I think subs are going to be in, you know, short supply come um, September, but really planning for coverage um, and how does that look, especially if we're trying for smaller cohorts of, of students, um, that is definitely something to consider. Yeah, man, this is heavy, you know, this conversation is heavy. And, uh, well, and there's so many other things to think about, too, because so when we're saying things. Wednesdays off or Fridays are off, what does that mean for parents with trying to put together their lives right. with with right. And they work, you know, just like we work that, you know, they work. And, you know, that that doesn't seem to me to be a viable solution for the community to just say, you know, you're off this week, you're on this week, and the other half of schools, those rotating ones. I, I don't know how families figure that out. And what can communities do to really support if that's what's going to happen in schools? Uh, where will those children be? So that's, that's a real worry that I have. Um, the students home alone, and families really very trying to... That's the biggest worry for me. Yeah, it's, it's like, you're just assuming in that scenario, that parents can just stay home you know, or, or kids can just be home. I think one of the biggest issues that this has unveiled on education is that schools have, have been relied upon for so many years as being childcare facilities, essentially, right? Highly trained, highly educated childcare facilities. And we've built our work schedules around that. We've built all sorts of other things around that. A couple of years ago, I wrote an article for the educators room that was advocating for a year-round school, a year-round school calendar. And it wasn't anything radical. Lots of schools around the country do year-round school. Essentially, the year-round school calendar looks like three months on, one month off, three months on, one month off. And you just repeat, repeat all year round, right? And the blowback that I got from that article was that, um, number one, first and foremost, uh, schools don't have air conditioners and therefore you can't have school in the summer. Gotta be, you know, gotta be prioritized or gotta prioritize here. If you don't have air conditioners, teachers can't function. I get that. Interesting choice about why, you know, um, why people would, would push back on that article with that reasoning, but whatever. Second was that because the way work schedules function, there's no way that families felt like they could take one month off every three months to take care of their kids. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's a great point. <laughs> but the way that we've situated the industry itself of education and the way it butts up against the work industry is such that the, the logistical existence of the two don't allow us for a lot of flexibility 
And I think we're going to run into a problem right now because of that. Well, and then you also think of the teachers with kids, teachers that have kids Oh man, that are yeah. not in the school that they're teaching. They could be in a different, we have, we have teachers that come from all sorts of different districts. So if their district is doing things differently than how we're doing things and yeah, then they end up having, uh, <laughs> that's a logistics problem for them. You know? Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and that kind of gets yeah. us into, into another topic we wanted to talk about. And that was, uh, protocols, right? Um, and just kind of talking about some of like the ins and the outs of the protocols that schools are adopting. Um, I know one thing that, that my school has been talking about is that they're going to have a designated temperature person that every single person who comes into our building and we've got a, a, oh my gosh, I want to say 385 students and about a, a hundred faculty admin other people that work in the building, every single person who comes into the building every single day will need their temperature taken by someone. That's a lot of thermometers, man. <laughs> and a lot of time, a lot of time. And like, will there be multiple entry points? Um, you know, it's, how do you figure out the busing? Um, that's the biggest thing. But um, the waiting areas, the temperature checks, um, trying to make sure that people are moving um, six feet apart in the same direction so that there's not that closeness in the halls. Um, it's all just such a, everything needs to be thought through. It's like a logistical puzzle, you know? Um, and looking at what the school day looks like, um, I know we've been talking with families too about, you know, how do you really realistically insist that a five-year-old wears a mask all day? Um, you know, and, but on the other flip side of that is how do we realistically expect parents to trust that, you know, we've got this when people aren't wearing masks. So, and I think with, you know, just culturally, as we've seen all over the news, people have such vastly different ideas about what's safe and what's not safe. Um, I really think it would be wise to just follow the CDC guidelines as best we can, because, um, some people believe, you know, uh, masks, not a big deal. Other people, you know, masks necessary. So I think we have to have all of those things in mind. And as, as Matt had said earlier, really listening to what the community um, is feeling, um, but then also making sure that everyone not only feels safe, but actually is safe. It's going to be a challenge. What ifs, right? Like, so what if a kid shows up and, they're and they have a temperature? What if they're in the, they've already been in the building and then get a temperature. Does everybody have to yeah. leave the building then and go into quarantine? Does, you know, if you were talking about earlier, oh, Mike. Yikes. Yeah. The interesting thing about this disease as well is that it doesn't always present itself with the temperature. So you could be carrying it asymptomatic, mm -hmm. no temperature, but meanwhile, mm -hmm. you're giving off to, you know, a hundred people and then some of those people will get a temperature. So the temperature thing is, is sort of an interesting um, way to go about it. Right, right. To add to that, what happens in a protocol situation where that one person does get the temperature and then you have to contact trace with that person? Yeah. Say, who did you come into contact with between what hours? You know, yeah. and that brings to the whole um, logistics of what you were saying earlier, Julie, you know, moving the same direction down the side of a hallway. But in, in our school building, we're a grades one through 12 building. So we're going to have to essentially have like three whole separate sections of the school to make sure that people are coming into contact with as few other people as possible on a regular school day. So once you walk into the building in our middle school, you could potentially only be contacting, you know, give or take about 80 people within the building. If you're within our high school though, you could potentially be contacting only about uh, maybe 150 different people <laughs> on a regular basis. Um, and the elementary school is lower than that. But then I think like, what is that? what does that protocol look like for a school that's way larger than ours? Um, maybe at say, Matt, the high school that's in your guys's major district. I mean. How many thousands of kids are in that school? I think there's three. Three thousand. Right. <laughs> three thousand people, man. That's wild. I can't. 
<laughs> 3,000 people, yeah. six feet apart in yeah, unidirectional hallways, right. yeah. all facing the same directions in small mm. cohorts. <laughs> I mean, I really do think like... <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. But a wild part of this, too, is we're talking about this from a K-12 perspective. You know, a big part of, like, a college experience, for example, is, you know, experiencing the in-person experiences of college. I was just talking with a colleague recently who was like, yeah, our colleges, our colleges have rented out all of the hotel rooms in a three-mile radius of the college for the entire fall and are just, like, putting people up in individual hotel rooms because they can't have more than one person in a room and i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> what <laughs> but that's 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 like a whole other rabbit hole we could talk about that let's talk about um like learning like what's going on with learning in in school this fall um i have lots of thoughts here but I, i'll i'll jump into talking about what i think is potentially going to be the hardest hit area of learning and that's what schools have traditionally called specials right which include art and music and uh you know photography and um all of these things that we uh you know um all of these things that the government loved to cut funding for when no child left behind was still a thing and uh people were like no 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 literacy and math and that's it and otherwise you know it doesn't really matter um all those things are also super problematic. And I'll just run down two scenarios that I find to be exacerbatingly problematic, right? I play the the saxophone, let's say. I did play the saxophone when I was in, when I was in middle school, but I play the saxophone. I come to school, I'm a world-class saxophonist. I've been playing in the jazz band for blah 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 years, you know. And I find out that the saxophone, along with every other instrument that you blow large volumes of air through, are, is more likely going to transfer COVID-19 to everybody in the room than any other instrument. And so what happens? I basically am giving up my passion for the saxophone um, in school, which takes up you know roughly 30 to 40 hours a week of my life, for never doing it in school because I can't physically do it without endangering potentially the lives of others around me. That goes for singing. That goes for any number of other instruments that are not, um, you know, that are, that are brass and woodwind and, and what have you. And um, so that, so that's one scenario, right? Second scenario is I'm in art class. I'm an amazing art student. And my art teacher says, sorry, nobody can share supplies in the art room anymore. There are no more communal supplies. And my family doesn't have enough money to buy art supplies. And so I can't do art in school anymore because I can't share with other people. And all of a sudden, what am I doing? You know, this, this avenue that I had as an outlet in my life that was so important for me for so long is gone this thing that I love to do in school is gone. You know, it just is, it makes school a bummer, man. That's what I always said during, uh, during NCLD was school's a bummer for a lot of kids right now. Cause they can't do the things that they love. Um, so, so those are two scenarios that I'm thinking of when it comes to academics. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably value things like music and art, just like we do. Um, but let's also talk about some of the other things. What about uh, personalized learning? Julie, Janine, y'all do that sort of stuff. You want to talk about that? We do do that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thinking about, you know, what our school's all about, you know, what's our mission and, you know, we're a mission-driven school. So how do we maintain that experiential learning if we can't do field work? Um, how do we... Um, Still have project-based learning, um, still work cooperatively with each other in an authentic, meaningful way um, when we really can't go anywhere. So we're just going to really have to, it, it's again, like a puzzle, I keep saying, it's you just have to figure it out. You know, I think there's a lot of different resources that we can um, try to tap into. I think other schools can uh, shine a light and um, some of the schools that we've already mentioned in this podcast uh, before, we're definitely going to be using them as, as examples. 
um, because we're used to going on 20 fieldwork experiences a year. You know, we're used to getting out and about uh, using our community as our classroom. So we are definitely going to have to spend some time, you know, rethinking um, and really um, trying to look at it as an opportunity, not um, grieving for what we've lost, but, you know, just a reinvention, you know, um, and I think we can still hold on to um, a lot of our approach. Um, just the, again, the logistics are going to have to be different. Yeah, I was just, uh, you were just making me think of our first fieldwork experience that was supposed to be for this year. We, we do it in oceanography unit. So we were supposed to go camping in Cape May down at the beach, right? Um, and my daughter actually is going to be in our class this year, and she is very upset <laughs> that we are not going to probably go on the camping trip. But she, as she, her and her friends keep on trying to come up with suggestions, which I think is is cute um, for how we could pull off field work. And maybe we maybe we could just have like four separate trips to Cape May, and that we'll just have to go in different groups, you know. But then we were just at the beach uh, this past week, and. Um, I had her picking up every, cause we usually do like a, and I, we go on a, a walk on the beach and we identify all the different shells and creatures and, you know, things that we can find. So we collected as many shells of different varieties as we possibly could. Cause I'm thinking, well, if we can't go there, I'm going to have to bring it back <laughs> so that we can either do it in the classroom or I can create little kits that I can send home to the kids and they can do their own little lab at home and I'll, I'll bring the beach to them. Matt, I, I would love to hear your thoughts from a tech perspective here. Um, obviously there's been, well, I've been using technology in my class for a, for a while and I know many teachers have, but it's not always such an easy fit for how students enjoy learning, right? Not a lot of students love uh, accessing their Schoology work, right? And not a lot of teachers love that either. Um, how have you uh, been like supporting teachers and students in their efforts to kind of move in that direction? Yeah, that's great. I was just talking to someone about this um, yesterday or the day before. So the first step would be to get an LMS, a learning management system like Schoology, set up some structures, right, for teachers, but do not go overboard. Like give teachers freedom with structure. And then Mike, I think I think you're right. You gotta go the next step, right? We gotta go deeper. And I've been thinking about what are key characteristics of technology transformation, right? And I've been thinking a lot about innovation, choice, agency, and creation. So those four principles, I feel like if we can focus on those and not all the newest software out there, all of these emails we're getting, try this, try this, try this. Like, right, let's right. mute all that right. out and let's focus our attention to using technology in transformative ways by, you know, highlighting innovation, choice, agency, and creation. Now, those are just four that I've sort of thought about. I'm not sure why, you know, I know why I came to those, but those are four that I think are, but like, again, that's the values of the school. Like, what do you think is valuable? And let's focus on that. Like, let's put our attention on that. Let's put our energy on that because you're right. The students are, are, are not going to be into just filling out discussion posts on school. G. I'm not into that on Blackboard. So why should they be? Right. <laughs> um, but like, I love doing some cool stuff that is, that goes with what I care about, like agency. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that those are really important points for schools to consider. Um, and I also think it's really important for teachers to consider, like, what are we using this digital platform to do? If we're just going to try to drive traditional learning through a digital platform, it just isn't going to work. You know, like kids don't like technology that much. And the ones who do don't like technology that much for that reason. The ones who do are already the ones that are, you know, banging through the Coursera courses and jumping on MOOCs about, uh, you know, sorts of crazy interesting topics that you can get into a MOOC for. But I don't know that I see most of students enjoying learning in that manner. And it isn't a question about whether they want to enjoy learning in that manner or about whether or not they just haven't had exposure in that way. I think kids, I think humans enjoy learning because it's a social experience. You know, we enjoy learning because we're interacting with other human beings around us. And it, 
technology doesn't do a great job at making that happen. Um, even even Zoom, the the all heralded um, tool that we've come to love in these last few months, right, is still only a marginal replacement for in-person interaction. So we're moving toward the end of the episode. I want to cover a couple more things. The biggest thing I want to cover before we get out of here is what are the, the big ticket things that schools are going to be like super struggling with in, in our points of view come the next 60 days into the fall? And I'll start. I think one of those has got to be funding. And I can't imagine like the, the, the current state of the economy right now is, is tenuous right? We are not doing a good job of helping support some of our most um, vulnerable workers in the workforce. We are not doing a good job of making sure that people who really need the economic means to keep their families and their households together are able to do that. Um, and we might be doing a good job or a marginal job right now, but that's going to end soon, right? There's there's no, there's no carte blanche around this extra $600 a week for, um, for unemployment that's coming in. And there's this huge push right now to, quote unquote, open the economy back up, get restaurants moving again, all of these things. And all of that is, I think, resulting and going to result in a lack of money for education. And we've already sort of uh, experienced this a little bit. You know, a lot of our schools have talked about budget cuts because, you know, the school funding formula is broken and doesn't really um, doesn't really fund schools like it should. And it's just going to come to bite us, I think, very quickly here in the fall if we're not able to figure out some other means of reinvigorating the school economy with additional either federal money or state money or 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 something. It's got to happen. And if we're not going to see it this year, we're going to see it in the, in the fall of 2022 or something like that, where there's going to be a dramatic shortcoming of, of education dollars. What are our other, like, holy crap, thing? this is going to happen? Well, I think if I just stay on the money thing for a second, um, you know, that's a, a large way. I think with um, there will be, you know, staff layoffs. Um, there will be, even though we're asked to, you know, teach in smaller cohorts, you know, smaller uh, teacher-student ratios, it's going to be tricky. Um, but I think the budget shortfalls are going to hit. Um, but we're also asking schools to spend more on things that are going to cost us money, like face masks and, you know, plexiglass screens and, um, you know, waiting, uh, outdoor waiting rooms. I've heard uh, a lot of uh, schools trying to think about how to get school kids into the building, um, you know, hand sanitizer, hand washing stations, um, furniture, um, if you if you can't sit at a, a table or share supplies and um, all those supplies, all of those things are going to cost money. So that, um, you know, I don't envy um, state decision makers or district decision makers, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think for some schools, space is going to be a, a huge issue. If we have to follow CDC guidelines and try to do the six feet apart thing, uh, you know, I know our school is like busting at the seams. So I just think that's going to be super challenging. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why every school is going to kind of have to figure things out for themselves, because there is no one size fits all solution here for sure. Yeah, I can just imagine some of those schools that have grown so quickly that they've had to just like add trailers on, right? Which are like self-contained yeah. classrooms in the parking lot of their school and yeah. what that experience has got to be like. Like there's no way, <laughs> there's no way. Yeah. Matt, what about from your yeah. perspective? What are some of the things that schools are going to have to consider? Yeah, it's hard to get past that six feet thing. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about <laughs> right. that, it's hard for me to go anywhere else because I just don't see it. And then, uh, you know, Julie's talking about earlier that everyone's going to have to go the same way down the hallway. You know, you try to get your head wrapped around those two things, and and there's many dilemmas um, <laughs> that present themselves. And and I feel for 
for schools that that are that are tightly packed, you know, because now we're talking about how schools, you know, aren't equally funded, right? Um, and it's coming right to the forefront again, and 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 I hope it shines a light um, so that some changes are made, like our funding structure. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I I think also about what we talked about earlier, Matt. You you might run into this as well. Is what happens? You know, your kids don't go to school in your own district. What are what are they doing for the fall? Your kids go into school in the fall? Yeah, so they haven't they haven't made that announcement and Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and then transportation and um Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I Julie's think, favorite topic. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just can't that's the thing I can't figure out is the transportation. Um you look at those those little maps on the CDC and the state guidelines. Um, how does one figure out if the family members can sit together um, in groupings? They're not going to the same school. We're supposed to have staggered start times. Um, it's just going to be a lot, the transportation. So I definitely think, and transportation of you know teachers, kids, and everything else um, going to have to be uh, figured out. So I think whoever's in charge of transportation, I wish them Godspeed. <laughs> I... I do not know. We attract students from all over Southeast Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And I I could also see New Jersey shutting down and saying no more school, but Pennsylvania staying mm. open. And then we've got like, you know, a dozen kids that we get from New Jersey that are all just stranded. Like <laughs> those poor kids can't come to school and everybody else is going to school, you know? And it just is like, yeah that's maddening. And we, we run like these little buses from all over the place, you know, with like elementary school kids on one bus and high school kids on the same bus. And already that's a little, like a bit of a mess, but our, our school and, and the private schools depend on the district's transportation services. So if our plan, if our plans don't align, I don't, I don't know how it's possible. Like the district could decide they're going to do schooling staggered or every other day or whatever, but you know, the private school or our school down the street decides, no, we want to go every day. And then what? Are they going to provide transportation or are they not? I don't know. It's Yeah, let's get into our final uh, couple segments here. And our first segment is how is this conversation making me rethink education? Who wants to kick off this segment? I will kick it off, Mike. Thank you, Julie. So <laughs> I think uh, that, again, going back to my logic puzzle, if we start with the essentials we started this podcast with, thinking about equity, you know, leading with engagement and social emotional learning, I think we're going to be able to pull this off. I'm very optimistic. Um, we got our feet wet in the spring, um, looking at school differently. Um, we have this, you know, 60-day challenge. Is it less than that now? I don't know, but <laughs> uh, so I think... I think if we uh, put our heads together, I think we're going to be able to pull it off. That's what it's making me rethink. Okay. Okay. What about you, Janine? I think I'm on uh, the same lines there that everything's going to be okay and, and it's going to work out. I, I've had some really great conversations with some phenomenal educators over the past couple of weeks here and just how they're really trying to collaborate. And like, and like Matt was talking about earlier, bringing in the stakeholders, seeing what the community really wants, what they need um to really make school a reality again here in the fall so that I, that I feel I feel reassured about at least okay okay <laughs> and I I, I I think we're gonna be okay okay y'all are super optimistic I appreciate this what about <laughs> you Matt what are you what are you thinking about yeah just uh the ways that you know technology and the learning um you know it's a chance for innovation right, to, you know, during the midst of this, things being, you know, flipped upside down. Um, I just hope, you know, I really hope that um, we don't just keep trying to do traditional school through a digital learning model, um, and it just sort of zaps everything out of there. Mike, because I totally agree with, with what you mentioned. Some people have a misconception. They think kids just love technology. Um and and I agree, like they don't. It's not like, oh, put a computer. Oh, now they're gonna be so engaged. Like, no. Um, there needs to be engaging lessons. And 
you know, and yeah, okay, you put a fancy toy in front of someone, they, they're gonna, it's gonna be interesting for a little bit. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's, um, it's a chance to innovate, and I'm just a little worried that, um, you know, they're gonna try to do traditional school with digital learning, and, and it's not gonna work, and it's not gonna engage, but this is a chance not to do that. I'm gonna build right on that, Matt, and say, this is an opportunity for schools to ask one really important question. What are we using our in-school time for? That's the question that I want schools to answer. Because when it comes down to it, the thing that our students missed this spring the most was hanging out with each other and their teachers. That was it. They wanted to just see their teachers. They wanted to see each other. They wanted to just like sit in the hallway and talk or be away from their parents or whatever. And it just leads to this whole question of like, what are we doing with our community time? What are we doing with this, this really precious amount of time that we have together with our students? And if we're going to just fill it with, with nonstop academic um, like bludgeoning, then our students are going to hate school even more than maybe they have in the past, right? And that isn't to say to all of our points earlier is we can't lose track of what um, the purpose of school is to help students learn. But we also have to understand that um, that our, our in-school time with these individuals is going to be limited and we really need to maximize that time as much as possible. Um, so that's sort of what it, this is making me rethink. Let's jump into our last segment, plugs. I know you all brought a plug. Who wants to share theirs first? In keeping with the theme, I'll go. <laughs> uh, so um, I'm going to plug headrushlearning.com. Uh, um, Headrush Learning is uh, a platform that helps track and manage um, project-based learning. So that's definitely something that we were able to do kind of with an eye shot in a classroom. Uh, so thinking about how to maintain our project-based learning approach um, and moving to a hybrid, some kids in, some kids out, or uh, all online, um, I really think this might be the ticket to helping us manage that better. Cool, cool, cool. All right, Matt, what are you plugging? An interesting book that I read, uh, Rewiring Education by John D. Couch. It just helps to take a deeper look um, on how to integrate technology um, within our learning processes. All of the next plug... I'm going to plug the Black Scholars podcast. Um, I've listened to, I just recently came across this, this podcast on um, Instagram and have listened to one episode. Um, I really have loved it and uh, think it brings a really interesting and important voice to the education conversation. I'll drop a link for that uh, pod in our description. But if you just um, look it up on iTunes or Apple Music or whatever you have, it's called The Black Scholars Podcast. It's pretty great. Janine, what do you want to plug? All right. There is the Brooklyn Lab School, which has been working with several different collaborators um, and design firms for coming up with different protocols or ideas for heading back to school in the fall. And they're sharing all of their research with everybody um and it's great they they're like really going into analyzing uh, you know the space and what are the different scenarios that you could possibly play out and they put together this whole document this toolkit they're calling it this back to school facilities toolkit um and it it's, it's kind of long to look at but they have lots of different diagrams and things for you to consider um i think it's a really great resource for for right now um so anyway, you can find it at equitybydesign.org backslash the dash toolkit. I know it's kind of wordy, but we'll, we'll, we'll plug it in there somewhere like that. <laughs> Equity, equitybydesign.org. Um, Our then, principal shared that with us um, yeah. earlier today, and um, it's definitely high quality. A lot of different collaborators spent a lot of time. It made me think of action. They're doing like action research, basically. They really brought in all sorts of different stakeholders and we're surveying different groups and they're they're looking for participants and focus groups and um yeah it's interesting huh, super interesting yeah well 
Everyone, it's been a pleasure as usual. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope listeners that you enjoyed this conversation as well. There's some really rich content, I think, in here, things that we talked about that I hope that you're getting engaged with in your school community as you start to rethink how you're opening your school and rethink how your voice is playing a role in that. As Tom Vander Ark mentioned a few episodes ago, get involved, get your voice out there. And while you're at it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I realize, co-host, that I've been saying it wrong the last 15 episodes. It's not iTunes anymore. They're trying to do away with the iTunes. It's called Apple Podcasts now. Wah, wah. Yeah, I got to get it right. So leave us your review on Apple Podcasts. We would love it. We're, we want to try to get up to 20 plus reviews. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.